loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm welcoming Mindy Corcoran. Mindy's life purpose changed from guiding people financially as CEO of a successful wealth management firm to making it her mission to gather people to shine a light on peace. Mindy is the founder of Faith Always Wins Foundation and the Seven Days Make a Ripple, Change the World Experience. She's the co-founder of Workplace Healing, LLC. In her podcast, Real Grief, Real Healing, she offers her audience the opportunity to hear from real people about their life-altering experiences and what steps they took and are taking to find healing. Her book, Healing a Shattered Soul, gives readers a look into her faithful journey of courageous kindness after the trauma and grief of domestic terrorism. With compassion and forgiveness, Mindy shares her experience of loss as a daughter and a mother, a wife and co-worker, both nationally and internationally. Mindy encourages and motivates audiences to overcome life's challenges one day at a time. Welcome, Mindy. I thank you, Cheryl. I appreciate being here. Uh, very, very happy to have you. Of course, not not happy for what brings you here. Um, you know, such a traumatic, um, two actually traumatic losses that, that you experienced, but so glad to learn about your work in the world and to be able to share it here. Thank you. I, I appreciate what you do, that you have a weekly podcast about grief. I My podcast is monthly, and I, I was thinking about that when you know, I heard that it's weekly and I thought, oh my goodness, that is a sad situation that there are so many of us that are experiencing such uh, grief, but it's also a, a wonderful opportunity for you to help others through your podcast on such a, an, um, you know, a unique basis. It's, it's a, a passion for sure. And, you know, when I started doing it, which was almost eight years ago, unbelievably, um, my friends were saying, how will you ever get enough guests? And I have to say that's never been a problem. Um, And it's actually, um, as more and more conversation is out in the world about grief, it has changed somewhat how much, um, you know, public expression of grief and memoirs and books and all that. Um, Certainly lots of people are doing incredible work in the world based on their losses. Uh, coming out of their losses. So let's talk about yours specifically, um, how you came to work in this world. I guess I guess I would say you, you had some grief experiences before this one in terms of, you know, leaving a marriage and leaving locations. And But um, you struck me as someone who was able to take um, definitive action to improve situations. And and this one was much different. Yes? 
Yes, it was very different. Yes, so that is correct. I I was divorced previously. I had had my first child, Reet, and it's spelled R-E-A-T for your listeners if they're thinking, how did she spell that name? His name is Reet, and he was four weeks old when I left his father, and he was born in 1999. And then I was married and uh, again and had another son. And so that's the family that I had in 2000 and 14 when all of this took place. Um, So I was married to my second husband with two boys. Another grief event that had happened, and I write about this in the book, uh, at the age of 16, I lost a very dear friend of mine, my best friend, my girlfriend, Lynn, her brother, Kyle, was killed in a car accident. Mm -hmm. And it just, it hit me um, for many, many, many years. And when I wrote the chapter in particular about Kyle, and I had interviewed his mom and dad, my mom too, and dad too, Leroy and Janet, you know, they, they found um, solace in knowing how important they were still in my life. And they know that my mom um, was surprised that I had had such a difficult time with Kyle's death. She didn't remember that I had, and she was concerned that maybe they hadn't been there for me. And I said, no, you know, you were there for me to the extent that I knew what I even needed. And just as mm-hmm. you said, as we were opening the conversation, as years have passed and, and now recently, specifically with COVID, there's so much more conversation about mental health and grief and awareness and people having mindfulness and awareness of our own feelings and then feeling okay to not be okay and feeling okay yes. to, to discuss that. And so, um, yeah, so I had some grief events prior to my father and son uh, being murdered by a white supremacist in 2014. And I, one thing that stood out, I mean, that situation is, it, I, I like to imagine myself into people's situations. It's a, it's a, a a thing of mine, but that is uh, challenging to imagine, and especially so. Uh, you know, I think my my friends who are Jewish uh, carry a a fear of anti-Semitism. You know, um, yes, and violence as a result. But you are not Jewish. You wouldn't carry that fear necessarily. Um, so why don't you tell people what happened? Because I think um, it has something so important to say about just how destructive, how how hatred is destructive, and it doesn't. It it, it goes everywhere, right? <laughs> it's, that is correct. It, it's not. Uh, it, it's not targeted, really. It's just hatred. Correct. Yes. And so when I get asked sometimes about, you know, what, why did I write the book? There are many, many reasons why I wrote the memoir, Healing a Shattered Soul. And one of them is specifically about the topic that you're bringing up. I am a white woman and I am Christian. So you would not typically think that I am a target of um, anti-Semitism, nor would I typically be a target of racism. And yet I lost a father and a son to a violent crime. They were murdered in broad daylight on a Sunday. It happened to be Palm Sunday in Overland Park, Kansas. And they were at a Jewish location 
They were at the Jewish Community Center in Overland Park, Kansas. My son, Reet, um, who was 14 at the time, was extremely talented, and he was auditioning for a singing competition, and my dad was driving him. And we're Christian. My dad is Christian, and we're Christian, but we moved in and out of that Jewish location from the time the boys were little. They, we had been there numerous occasions for swim class or baseball or other theater. Um, there was an art class that I took one time. I mean, we'd just been in and out. It, I never had any thought of needing security or nor did I take the time to think about um, my Jewish friends and the fact that they did have security. You know, they, they did have security and they do continue to have security at their synagogues during their high holy days the they have security that's present hmm. and now that now that this um atrocity happened to us i am much more aware and i also do know now what it feels like to be a target but but to go back to what you what you were your point was really well intended for sure and and right on that when hate rhetoric is allowed toward anyone it can hurt and it will hurt all of us. And so when we choose to, when I say, oh, I'm a white Christian woman, I don't need to say anything about those racist comments um, being spewed at that black woman because that's not going to hurt me. I'm not a black woman, but I am, I would be wrong about that. I would be wrong to think that I don't have a responsibility to stand up and say that that is wrong because she is human and and as, as we were talking, as a, as a Christian, Jesus says to me, love your neighbor, and everyone is my neighbor. And so a reason for writing the book is to point out that as a white Christian woman, we ended, you know, our family, white Christian family, we ended up being a target of anti-Semitism just by being there. And it's important from my platform, I feel like I have a responsibility to explain to people that we have a responsibility to stop the hate rhetoric. It's interesting what you're saying because uh, my family is is quite um, diverse. Um, I'm married to a Hispanic woman. I have a black child. Uh, I have a Persian and Brazilian sons-in-law. You know, um, and it and it's true that people don't quite get it viscerally, will never get it the way someone in those groups does, but it becomes much more visceral when you love people affected, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. When you love them and or when they are affected by it, you know, in the, in the aftermath of it or right. like well, my dad and we were. Mm -hmm. And of course, your circumstance is the most extreme affected, but um I would say daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, everyone in my family is affected. Right. It's probably daily. with microaggressions. Do they, they probably get what I've heard are called microaggressions? All the time. Many mm -hmm. of which I've, I've observed. Right. And, um, and my job is to try to interrupt that. To t to t of course, it's hard because I'm old now. <laughs> it's harder to <laughs> safely interrupt, but I try to say something or do something because it's so hard for the people who are directly affected to always be having to say something or not say something and just take it or, you know, I, th I think it's uh, actually 
really important that people not directly affected speak. Correct. I think it's as important, yes, and and like you said, almost more important that those of us who don't look like we would directly be affected, that we step in and say something and and defend someone as if we knew them our whole lifetime. Um, you know, even if it's a complete stranger that we would step in and and again, I feel like I have a responsibility of that. And that's where pretty much everything that I do now, literally everything I do has changed mm. since that day. And all of the objectives and uh, platforms in my life are now associated with helping other people in some way, either learning about faith, uh, different faiths than their own through Faith Always Wins, about um, exuding kindness at least seven days in a row through our seven days, make a ripple, change the world activities that are annual. And then I'm opening a, a, a profit, a for-profit company is my goal. And it's called workplace healing. And that's a, a healing objective for managers to have the right tools in place to help onboard and reintegrate employees after they have had a life disruption. Oh, that's so, so major. And of course, there's a few other people in that space. And it's just so critical because workplaces, um, to be charitable, they don't know what to do. Sometimes they know what to do, and they don't do it. But most of the time, they actually don't know what to do. So that that just seems so important. Um, And we'll talk more about all those things. But um, I hope you'll share an excerpt from the near the beginning of the book about the actual experience of losing your father and your son. Um, it, it feels to me so important to not skip over uh, the horrendous moments that lead to these big things. That's sort of the, the theme of this show. So, um, you know, the grief and where we go. <laughs> yes, I understand. Um, so let's, let's have you share a bit before the break here. Okay, so I'm starting on page 22. Uh, It's from the chapter I titled Your Fathers in Heaven. And I start with, as I turn the corner from 115th Street into the campus, I spot the celebratory flags lining both sides of the street, leading me to the JCC, which is the Jewish Community Campus. I reminisce about the numerous times we've frequented these beautiful facilities swimming lessons, the junior triathlon, art classes, baseball lessons, and previous theatrical performances have had us visiting this location as a family for about nine years. Reet would have been five and Lucas three. In 2014, as I'm driving into the campus, the JCC is happily celebrating 100 years. Now, turning right as I enter the parking lot of the JCC, my car is facing west, and I am driving through a mostly empty lot. Another quick glance at my clock tells me it is 1.08 p.m. Great, plenty of time to make it in to see Reed perform, I mumble to myself. Dad's crimson color Sooner truck is noticeable because it is one of the only vehicles I can see parked near the building's white theater entrance. His truck is facing south, and I notice both doors on the driver's side are open, but I don't see Dad. I can't see anyone walking around. I am curious as to where he is and why he left both doors open. My speed would have been conducive to typical parking lot speed, perhaps a bit faster due to the lack of other vehicles in the parking lot. 
Within seconds, my eyes find my dad. My heart begins to race. My mind is confused. I can see clearly but not understand why my father is lying on the ground perpendicular to the driver's side door. His body seems motionless. Fear about Reed's whereabouts comes to mind. Where is Reed? Is he calling an ambulance? Has dad had a heart attack or a stroke? I hear myself speaking in guttural language. Reet? Ambulance? What happened? What happened? That experience of seeing a scene, you know, seeing what's happening, but not being able to take in what's happening. Um, I've had minor moments of that in my life, um, but this is such a huge moment of that. And, you know, our, our psyches protect us in that way, I guess. Um, but that must have been such a very confusing moment. Yes, it was very confusing. And, you know, some might say kind of out of body, except I never felt out of body until, um, until I ran to my dad, um, which uh, the reader will read in later that I ran to my father's body. And that's when I heard the words, your father's in heaven, go find Reed. And Cheryl, I believe that was God speaking to me. Let's come back and talk about that because those I, uh, those moments of of knowing of of knowing whatever it is that's beyond us. Many people call it God. You do. <laughs> um, they're so uh, unmistakable, aren't they? Yes, so it was let's powerful. Come back, let's let's come back and talk about that in a few minutes. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief Pace page at Voice America. Links to every single thing, including my email list and my novel, An Ocean Between Them. To find Mindy Corcoran, go to www.mindycorcoran, M-I-N-D-Y-C-O-R-P-O-R-O-N.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. corazón. 
You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Mindy Corcoran about her book, Healing a Shattered Soul. And Mindy, before the break, uh, part of your uh, what we were talking about was this, this hearing of a voice, uh, and, and that means it didn't feel like you, and you said it did feel like God. Correct. It was not me, and it, and it wasn't anyone else, Cheryl. There was the, the people that were in the parking lot at the time, besides my father, my father, I found his body, and he was deceased. I could tell by looking at him that he was deceased. He had died on contact from a, a gunshot wound, and I felt someone, I felt the feeling of someone holding my shoulders and stopping me from getting closer to my father. I was about two feet away. And I felt this pressure, like someone had both my shoulders and was pushing against me as I was pushing against them. And then I heard the words, your father's in heaven, go find Reet. And those words kept coming back to me significantly uh, over weeks for weeks at a time. And I even thought for a period of time, well, maybe when, when, I, when I was writing this book, perhaps those should be, you know, maybe that should be the title of the book. Um, they were, they've been so meaningful to me. And then since then, I hear God whisper to me, um, I am with you. When I am in my deepest, darkest moments, uh, just very dark, sobbing on the floor, I will hear, I am with you. And, uh, and I explained that at one point in time in the book, and I thought it was my husband. And I said, did you, did you say that to me? And he said, no. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. Um, but yes, I do feel like I can hear that whisper. I call it a whisper of God. Mm-hmm. I, I also, I, I want to get your opinion on this a little bit, because you build bridges ac- across traditions. And I have the idea logical or illogical, that um, we kind of hear the voice of what's greater than ourselves through our own lens, like we're looking at our side of the mountain. And so how meaningful for you to hear that your father's in heaven, because you believe in heaven, you know, and you're Christian. And, you know, I might think um, they've gone beyond or, you know, out of my reference point, um, but I think that's so important in in building bridges because there's no there's nobody that's wrong about what's true. From my view, you know, I, they're different they're different paths to the same location. But I wondered what you think about that. I absolutely I love I love that you said they're different paths to the same location. I believe that as well, logical or illogical, that um, when I pass. I will be in a place where I will see my loved ones and and many other people who along the way took their own path to get to their place of peace. And I call that place of peace heaven. That's what that's what I call it. But there will be to me many people who got there and they will get there in their in their own path. So yes, I I have no um discourse with the with, with the way that you just explained that. 
I think it's so important in this conversation, which is at the heart of your work, um, about us understanding each other. Um, because, you know, that kind of hatred comes from the idea, in my view, that there is only one right, right way and no one else deserves to live. That is correct. That is correct. And 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 the problem is that when people are allowed to think now, let me say people can be allowed to think what they want. They can they can be allowed to think that their, their way is the right way. And, and that's it. What they shouldn't do is harm people with their thoughts in that way and harm people because someone thinks differently than they do. So the man who murdered them had these evil thoughts and he could keep all those evil thoughts to himself as far as I care, but he didn't. He, he wanted other people to join him in that hatred. And that's where the problem ensues is when um, someone might be um, the attacked is the wrong word. Um, but right now what's going on, I'm really aware, very well aware of this is that, teenagers who are very highly engaged in gaming. Um, and I don't know exactly which gaming, but maybe all gaming. And I know that they do live and, and that people can join live from all over the world. And I know that um, these young people are prey for someone to potentially tell them or build them up in a way that they, um, they teach them this rhetoric, you know, while they're gaming. And mm -hmm. it's, it's becoming very scary that they're you know, talking to them about this, this rhetoric while their parents may think nothing of that rhetoric. May, their parents, you know, may be leaders in the community or leaders in a, in a faith practice, but yet if their child is not um, understanding that they're being led down a very difficult, perhaps evil path, then that can continue to take them there. And I, I have a friend who lost her son to that because he walked down that that path into white supremacy, and he ended up being murdered by another white supremacist. And they, um, you know, and she's she's obviously very upset and distraught about that. And they're moving on and growing with their lives and doing positive things um, to help them. But I, I thought that when the murderer, the reason I bring this up is I thought that when the murderer murdered my dad and Reet and Terry Lomano. There was a third woman murdered. And I try to always mention Terry. They were, they were all three murdered. I thought that perhaps his, you know, well, he said in the courtroom hearings that his parents taught him that hate. He, he said his dad specifically taught him that hate. And so Cheryl, I um, naively thought, oh, well, that's how people learn. They, their parents must be teaching them. And we, mm -hmm. we have to, all these parents, we need to make sure these parents don't teach them. Well, then a few years later, I met a reformed white supremacist, Christian Picciolini from Chicago, and he's written several books and he's done documentaries on how he got out of hate. And I've had lots of conversations with him and read his book. And he got into that hate rhetoric because he was taught to be a leader. And in the space where he was taught to be a leader, what did they lead about? They led about hate. Mm -hmm. That was, that's, that's just what he joined. And, um, so there are many, many ways that people can go down this path. And the crux of it, Cheryl, is people want to belong. Indeed. People do, they do not want to be alone. People want to belong and they, and we deserve to belong, but we, we, as we have a responsibility to help people belong in safe, healthy environments. Well, also brains tend to, uh, without, without, um, evolution tend to go towards an us and them. 
And um, that's, you know, once you understand a person, it's harder to hurt them. Um, I'm thinking of all the the less dramatic, you know, less trauma traumatic and dramatic ways in which um, people, for instance, in my community, are harassed over and over and over again, laws against uh, being transgender and, you know, um, all of that kind of stuff, which is, which is about picking a them and throwing all your hate towards, towards, towards whatever the them is. I just happen to know those examples pretty intimately. Right. Instead of saying we're a we and having conversations about you know, what, what is it that we want to try to achieve? And let's have a conversation about that and get to know one another. Yes. Or at the very least, um, if you don't believe that being gay is right or what God wants, don't pick a same-sex partner. That's, that's all you have to do. <laughs> Just live your beliefs, mm -hmm. but don't impose them on other people. Right. And to the extent that they harm someone, and that's what's happening, is that people can have their beliefs, but to the extent they start harming someone, and that's what this murderer did, is he had his own beliefs and he decided that it was his time. To, he, he thought he was going to die and he thought, well, I need to kill some Jews. That's what he thought. And that's what he mm -hmm. said. I need to kill some Jews. And he planned this out methodically and went to two Jewish locations and shot at multiple people. And, you know, luckily he, he only murdered three people and horribly unluckily, two of them were mine. Let's hear a little more from the book. This is a little later in the book. Um, this had a lot of meaning to me and I'll, I'll tell you why uh, once we're, uh, once you've read it, um, the, you, you caption it where I was supposed to be. Yes, I call it where I was supposed to be. That is, um, that's the name of the chapter. And many times I've found over the last seven years since their murder that I was where I was supposed to be. I, you know, there's so many opportunities for me or thoughts for me to um, say, well, I'm the one that scheduled their appointment. You know, I could, I should have scheduled it somewhere differently. Uh, I didn't get to ride in the ambulance with Reet and he died in the ambulance. And so it was a struggle for me. And, and when I wrote this chapter, that's what I was talking about. I was trying to heal, heal myself through that process is where was I supposed to be? So, yes. Yeah, so let me start with this um, excerpt and I'm on page 100 uh, where I was supposed to be is the chapter. After a brief explanation, I understood that Reed's ashes would be sealed in an inner plastic vessel and then placed in the memorial case selected by the family I interpreted this to mean locked away and not easy to reach. Reed's laughter, smile, and hugs were already not easy to reach. I wanted some control, some reach with respect to his ashes. I can recall where Matt was sitting and the look on his face when I spoke these next words. Is there any way to make Reed available to me like a, a scoop and go from a vessel? Feeling all eyes turned toward me, I kept my eyes focused on Matt. Fearing that everyone present, my mother, brothers, Shelly Miller, who was my driver, and other chapel employees would see me desperately grasping for Reet. 
I quickly continued. Lynn and I enjoy traveling. We took the boys to many places, but Reet died at such a young age. There are so many more travel destinations for us, I think. I want to take him with me, with us. I could see Matt considering my question and now this key piece of information. I had volleyed to him to help me finalize my decision. He said something like, I have never heard the term scoop and go. Could you explain a bit further, Mindy? Feeling my heart in my throat and struggling to indulge in conversation about everything we would never do, never see or visit, I took a drink of water to clear my throat, allowing a few moments to pass. Shelly, sitting next to me, placed her hand on my arm, offering me her own empathy. I want to be able to scoop a bit of reet from the vessel and take him with us when we travel, say to a place with flowing water. I could place some of his ashes in our favorite locations and those we have yet to visit. If he's secured in the vessel, if he is buried in the ground, I can't do this. Could the vessel be opened? I, a concerned look that had settled on Matt's face now cleared and he presented calmly to me and all of us at the table. Yes, the vessel could be opened. The ashes would be inside a bag, inside the vessel, inside the urn or memorial case. The reason this, this uh, hit me in the heart is that uh, in a way you and I are talking about the kind of clarity that sometimes comes in early grief. Uh, I remember when my wife died. Now, that was a very um, prepared loss, as it turned out. You know, we had years of knowing she would die and all of that. But I think the clarity um, is familiar. Like, grief knows what it needs. And, you know, in, in some states of mind, you give it to grief, whatever it is. So my example that's similar to this is that I emptied out little little um, kind of thimble-sized little containers that had some oils in them and put ashes inside of them and gave them to people. And for, I want to say, a couple of years, I would um, not infrequently get a picture from somewhere in the world usually a beach, by the way, <laughs> uh -huh. um, where someone had um, put her ashes into the water. Mm -hmm. And it was the most beautiful thing to feel as if her essence was spread all over the, the globe. Mm -hmm. And did, uh, that give you, did that give you just immense joy? Immense joy. Yes. Immense joy. And, and um, also kind of honestly satisfaction that, that I had followed that impulse because um, people think you're weird a little bit, right? And you, yes. have to, uh, <laughs> you have to either not care or walk past it. Yes, and, and say, well, I tend I to feel... Care. You know, I don't... Uh, maybe I am weird, but I have to do this. Yes, I tend to feel, I understand what you mean. I tend to feel a little creepy sometimes when I hear, when, if someone, if someone reaches out to me very close to someone else's death, and I tend to be a magnet now for parents who've lost children. So I hear Absolutely. and know about a lot of children's deaths and the parents, and I tend to get 
you know, a message from a friend who says, you know, Sarah lost her child and when can I introduce you to her? And I will let them know, you know, you can introduce me at any time, but sometimes if I do feel that nudge, Cheryl, I'll say, you know, I know this sounds a little creepy. I just want you to know if you have any way to tell them or if you, you know, about their burial, they might want to consider cremation. And I tell them why. And I said, you know what, it's up to you whether you want to pass it on. But I do feel like, hey, this is something that, you know, you might want to think about. But, um, but I do agree with you that our grief is our grief, is our own, and it stands there with us and it gives us an indication of what we need to do for our own healing. Right. You know, I've, I've known people, for instance, who, who definitely were not going to speak at the memorial of the person. And for me, I had to speak. Uh, you know, it, it's just so unique and individual what a person needs. And I do believe that it helps to have been given the space to do what we need to do. Uh, I don't have uh, personally any regrets from that part of the story. Uh, you know, I feel as if, God, I got to do everything that that I wanted to. I actually watched my wife... Um, you know, went to the crematorium. I watched her cremated mm-hmm. um, as a result of a suggestion of someone else who had lost their spouse. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the way you pass that along there, as soon as I heard it, because we knew she was going to die, I was like, I'm doing that. And it was right. actually very expensive because you got to shut down the whole place. <laughs> but so let's let's go to another break and we'll come back. I When we come back, um, I think... Uh, We'll talk some more about all this, but also a little bit more deeply about the work that you do. Thank you. Uh, Listeners out there, you can go to weatheringgrief.com. That's my website. You can go to the Good Grief Host page. And to find Mindy Corcoran, you can go to mindycorcoran.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. This is Cheryl, Cheryl, your host, and I've been talking with Mindy Corcoran about her work connecting communication communities across difference, her her loss due to anti-Semitism, and uh, her book. And 
Mindy, I want to get to, you know, just sharing with the, the listeners a little more detail about the work you do. But uh, before that, obviously, you didn't experience this loss alone. You had a huge uh, community and, and a very close family that experienced it with you. And, you know, I find that we're, we're talking about sort of the... Um, the very sacred aspect of what you went through. And then there's also the human aspect where we get affected by trauma and it messes with our brain chemistry and messes with our relationships and, you know, it does a number on us. And I didn't want to skip that your family uh, really was sent on a, you, you had to do a lot to heal together as now a threesome uh, and I wonder if we could just start with the part of the, the excerpt you, you sent about your other son, um, yes. because I, it's so, um, both things that of course he was so deeply affected and two that, um, that sent you on a healing course with, with him. Um, that just seems so important to get out to people that, you know, that's not a quick, uh, a, a quick journey there. So can right. you, can you share a little from that? Yes. Yes, sure. I'd be happy to. And I, and I will let you know that at the time of the murders, uh, a man found me named, his name is Roger Kemp and his daughter, Allie Kemp had been brutally murdered in 2009 in Leewood, Kansas. So in our same community, and that was a stalker murder. and. Roger Kemp found me uh, through someone else. And he said to me two things. He said, um, 50% of marriages end in divorce after, after they've lost a child and you don't have to be a statistic. He said that to me. He said, so don't, mm -hmm. don't just jump ship just because. And then he also said, and you don't have to move. He said, if you, if you find that you need to move, move, but you don't have to move. And I, I, we ended up doing one of those. So we, we moved because if I had not moved, um, I probably would have ended up divorced. And, uh -huh. and so, yeah, so you, you really do. It was a, a lot of grit and determination on all, on all three of us, my, my husband, myself, and our son, Lucas was 12 years old at the time. And just, I'll just say real quickly, he is a thriving 19 year old. He will be a sophomore at the university of Arkansas and he's doing really well. So I'll, I'll move into that excerpt right now. Let's see, I'm on page 229. It's from part one, our teen in crisis. And I say part one because I spent two full chapters on uh, Lucas. He, he definitely deserved them. And I could have written much more about him as well. But he, he's definitely let, he's let me know that I've shared enough right now <laughs> about, about his life. Um, okay, so this is from that chapter. Trauma can do a number on our brain chemistry and functioning. We can appear extremely operational, and yet our brains are truly uninhabited for a period of time. Everyone's time in trauma triage differs. Lucas was loved and well-liked from the beginning of school. The traumatic murders, coupled with fear, layered self-doubt and skepticism on his now fragile state of mind. There used to be information I knew, and now there are blank spaces or holes in the messaging. For a period of, period of time, I lost the ability to compute mathematical equations, even simple addition and subtraction problems. This proved to be frustrating considering I was the CEO of a wealth management firm. 
In the week following the beautiful funeral for my father and Reed, I'm sitting at our kitchen counter, desperately pleading for the world to just stop. Please stand still. I don't think I can muster the strength to keep moving with you, is written in one of my many journal entries in late April 2014. It is as if we have been placed in a pool of thick molasses and expected to walk normally through the same syrupy, heavy muck. I don't want to move, which of course makes moving in any direction all that much more difficult. Now, while in that pool of molasses, we need to figure out how to parent a 12-year-old who has just lost his brother and grandfather to murder by gunfire. Hopelessness comes to mind. Where will I find hope during this tumultuous storm of life? Parenting is a tough job. Parenting, after losing a child, feels close to impossible. Learning to breathe on my own was only one step in thousands I had to take while I was parenting a hurting 12-year-old who had to be experiencing the same anguish. Losing my father and Reet was painful. Parenting Lucas after their deaths had its own layered complications. And that's that's to the side of uh, you know I'm working with a with a family right now uh, a mother and and two adult children you know in their 30s who um, the father of the family died and they're all doing it differently and you know together but differently and uh, so much conflict because y- you need what you need and then it conflicts with what other people need and you're trying to be there for everybody and it's it's really complex isn't it it's very complex and what we what i discovered early on is that i needed help i, I and not just professional help we did need professional help and we we got professional help and i discussed that quite at length in those chapters about lucas but i needed friend help i had to call several people on occasion to rescue Lucas from me and to rescue me from Lucas. We were, we would get so angry at one another. You know, I I said, when you, when you're driving a car and you want to push your child out of a moving car, you know, there's a problem. (laughs) Call a friend. Call a friend. (laughs) And I, and I phoned a friend, I phoned a friend and I called Mike and I, I had called Shelly and she wasn't available. And I called Mike, I said, Mike, I need, I need help. And he came and he rescued me and Lucas. He took Lucas for the period of about four hours. And we just, we needed that break. The other thing, Cheryl, that I'll tell you is um, Lucas didn't want me to say Reet's name for about a year. And all I wanted to do was talk about Reet. Uh-huh. And so it was very difficult. And I learned, I, I did what Lucas needed me to do when I was around Lucas. But then I found myself creating a foundation and I found myself creating experiences and I found myself with people who wanted to hear about REIT and were happy for me to talk about REIT. And then my husband would say, come home, you know, where are you? We need you at home. And um, it was definitely, it was definitely a struggle for all of us. And I, I talk openly about how my husband, Lynn healed differently through his friends and friendships and red wine, a lot of red wine. And I created things and stayed busy. And Lucas um, found anger, and I was his target. And um, it took a, a huge sacrifice on all of our parts and a move to Florida to kind of break that, um, you know, that cycle and um, and get us into a, a better situation for all three of us. You know, I would never wish early loss on any person. Uh, including the two children I was raising at the time that my wife died, 14 and two and a half. But 
the the other side of that is they learned early in their lives how to face a challenge and i and i see that play itself out over and over and over again that they're much better than their contemporaries at navigating challenges absolutely and of course and of course they're both the ones that get called right Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when something is really tough, they get the calls, uh, which probably at moments is a burden. But more, but more than that, though, it's a connective tissue between them and their communities. That, Absolutely, that they can go there. You know, that they can be there for for their for their people. Um, so it's really uh, if, of course, all that being said, if um, there's enough in the environment that supports you. Um, to go through your grief, because otherwise it just gets kind of, you know, turns into addiction or turns into some avoidance of some sort. But if you have the support like you gave to your son, it you can say now at 19, he's thriving, right? Yes. You could have imagined you could say thriving. Maybe you, you imagine saying he's okay. Right. Uh, at one at one point, I wanted to imagine that he would be alive because he was suicidal, he was suicidal twice. Yes, absolutely. And yes, yes. So and you, it took you... it took a lot of courageous kindness on the part of our friends, mm-hmm. a lot of courageous kindness, and that's what I call it in our book. and And then that's what I try to teach people is that we we can step into that nudge that we feel where we should help someone in a way that might feel uncomfortable to us, but it's what they need. And it was uncomfortable to me, but it was what Lucas needed. And I stepped into it and and we call it now courageous kindness. You know, the thing is that that sort of well-worn expression, it takes a village. Um, I feel that until you go through something really, truly, really, really hard, you don't get the full meaning of that expression. Um, and you relied on your community so much, as did I. Um, we didn't have to have all the answers for our kids, right? That is right. <laughs> you know, in fact, we were not the best people sometimes. And, um, and they came back to us with having, having gained something out there. Yes. Um, and I Le- just think that's so, so valuable to learn early. Yes, Lucas, we we empowered him and gave him the ability to um we put people in his play in, in, in or surrounded him. We so we did a good job of surrounding him with good adult mentors, great adult mentors, and he now knows who those people are and they are part of his tribe. And he has no problem um reaching out to them on his own if he if he feels the need. And it could be a professional counselor, it could be a friend. Um, but I've also gotten to the point now when he has a question and asks me something difficult and serious, I don't feel like I have to just send him to someone else. I can say to myself, you know what, Mindy, you're strong enough now. You can answer that. You, and also and that took time. And also he's matured enough that he can ask you. Yes. Uh, and and that's happened with both of my kids that the the conversation has gotten much more fluid and much more open. Um, so in the few minutes we have less left, um, you said you were um, kind of driven to, to 
you know, you were already an entrepreneur, so you already had that in your wheelhouse, but kind of driven to do these big, big projects as part of your healing. And I can understand that. Uh, it's the same reason I do this show. It's kind of in honor and it's kind of, um, it comes directly out of making meaning out of what I went through. Uh, and I imagine there's some of that for you. But just in these couple of minutes, can you give people a little more detail on what you do in these various entities? We've got like two minutes left. Yes. And they can find everything about me too. As you've already noted my website. So initially we started the Faith Always Wins Foundation. And that foundation, um, I'm proud to say, is still in existence and has a board that runs it. And the Faith Always Wins Foundation promotes dialogue for the betterment of our world through kindness, faith, and healing. And one huge aspect is uh, Faith Always Wins hosts and sponsors Seven Days Make a Ripple Change the World, which is a community activity, and it's um, engaging in kindness over a seven-day period. And then currently, uh, other than the book, which we've talked about um, enough, and um, and I'm thankful that we got to do that, but currently I'm working on workplace healing, and it's going to be a software as a service company. It's going to be a business-to-business company. And as a former CEO, I was a CEO and co-founder of a wealth management firm when this tragedy happened, and I had a lot of flexibility to help get myself back into the workplace, and I I ended up leaving my my firm in 2018. And I, as I was leaving the firm, I looked back and said, um, what can I do with my new skill set of understanding how to get through trauma? And I decided, um, along with a partner, Lisa Cooper, we are creating uh, tools for managers in particular, not the grievers, but managers, so that they do know what to say and when to say it when an employee has a life disruption. I, I really hope you'll keep me updated because that's so, so vital. And I just really want to thank you for being here today. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Next week, I'll have Emily Treat to talk about her book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.